The first question in the universe was uttered by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Addressing Adam and Eve, he said, Hath God said? Did God really say? The serpent's attack on the Word of God was intense, it was brutal, and sadly it worked. And in our day, that hissing snake is uttering that same question in the minds of everyone, and we have to have answers. Yes, God has said. God has spoken. May I ask you, where are you regarding the Word of God? Do you believe the Bible alone is the Word of God? If you do, on what basis? And do you believe the Bible is sufficient for everything you need in life? More than that, we need to ask of a church where it stands on this issue. Does the particular church in view believe the Bible is inerrant? That's a great starting point. But do they believe it's sufficient? That was the issue in the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation, and it's the issue in our day, and it's been the issue throughout all of human history. When we think of the Reformation, it was a back-to-the-Bible movement, and I'm convinced we need to know something of that uh, Protestant Reformation to understand the issues in our own day. The central issue back then was on the subject of salvation, justification by faith, alone. That was what would be called by theologians the material principle of the Reformation. By that it was the material, it was the stuff that was in view, talked about. Uh, it was so important to know how to be saved. But there was also a second principle, the formal principle and that was Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And that was the issue because Rome believed the Bible was the Word of God. So what was the problem? They also believed that the Pope or the magisterium of the church, the tradition of the church, was equal to the Word of God in authority. And in practical terms, it meant that once the church had spoken, that was the only way to understand and interpret the Scripture. And as you work that out, and as been seen throughout history since that time, rather than Rome believing in sola scriptura, they believe in sola ecclesia, the church. Uh, the church alone tells you what is the Word of God and how to interpret the Word of God, and it's a downhill ride from there. These are important issues because in our own day, there are many, many churches that would affirm, on paper at least, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. Review their doctrinal statements, and you'll see that. But when you go to a church service, you find out what they really believe. Do they believe that the Word of God is sufficient for evangelism? You go to the church service, and having read the doctrinal statement online, you're surprised when the Bible is hardly referred to, and the preaching of God's Word is anemic in the sense of very little of the Word of God is open to the people and the text is allowed to speak, the text is allowed to be brought forth by the preacher. There may be a reference to it, but it's not the central guiding focus because there are other things that are in view in terms of the idea of how to reach people in our day. I believe 
the Word of God is sufficient for that. And I believe Scripture tells us and declares us that. There's been a wholesale loss of the sense of authority of the Word of God in our day. There's no doubt about it. That hissing serpent is speaking. Has God really said? Do you think that's enough? No, no, no. Look at that church over there. They've got thousands and they're doing this. They might mention the Bible. Yeah, but that's not what's going to win people in our day. No, I believe faith comes by hearing not my opinion, not your opinion, not the preacher's opinion or the quotes of anyone else, but hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the message, the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is a supernatural thing that takes place to regenerate the heart of a man or a woman, a boy and a girl. And it's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit uses the means of the Word of God. There's a wonderful book I'm holding in my hands as I'm speaking to you. It's a book I would recommend that every Christian obtain. Get a Bible. Once you've got a Bible, there are a few good books to help you understand your Bible. The Bible alone is the Word of God, but there are some great books out there. One that had a dramatic impact in my own life is by James Montgomery Boyce. It's called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace? Rediscovering the Doctrines that Shook the World. In his chapter on uh, Scripture alone, chapter 3 of the book, he writes this, I would like to see the beginning of a new reformation in our day, and I hope you would like to see it too and are praying for it. I hope that you've become nauseated with the tawdry entertainment that passes for the true worship of God in many of our churches, and like the saints of the past, are longing for more of the deep truths of the inerrant Word of God. We certainly need a reformation. But what I'm suggesting in this book is that although we need to recapture the great theological truths that underlay and fueled the 16th century Reformation, the form that, ref- that recovery will have to take in our day must vary from the 16th century because the battle lines have shifted and the Pacific specific issues have changed. When we think of the Reformation, we think naturally of the five great theses of that movement, Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and Soli Deo Gloria. These doctrines are exactly what we need to rediscover, but to do so, we need to relate them to the specific challenges of our time, not only to those of the 16th century. He goes on. In Martin Luther's day, Sola Scriptura had to do with the Bible being the sole ultimate authority for Christians over against challenges to it from the traditions of the medieval church, church councils, and the Pope. The Reformers wanted Scripture to stand alone as the church's true authority. Today, at least in the evangelical church, that is not our chief problem. We assert biblical authority. Rather, our problem is in deciding whether the Bible is sufficient for the church's life and work. We confess its authority but we discount its ability to do what is necessary to draw unbelievers to Christ, enable us to grow in godliness, provide direction for our lives, and transform and revitalize society. So we substitute such things as Madison Avenue methodology for biblical evangelism, special religious experiences, rather than knowledge of the Word to promote and guarantee sanctification special revelations for discerning the will of God for our lives and a trust in the power of votes and money to change society. In other words, in the 16th century, the battle was against those who wanted to add church traditions to Scripture. But in our day, the battle is against those who would have us use worldly means to do God's work. Dr. Boyce goes on to speak about what a Bible-based ministry is, what it looks like, and he goes on to 
speak very, very clearly about the sufficiency of the Word of God, sufficient for evangelism, sufficient for uh, sanctification in the life of the Christian, sufficient for guidance, and sufficient for reformation of society, so social reformation. Uh, I hope you pick up the book and discover the truths he, he lays out based on the Scriptures, of course. Understanding this, where do we start? Well, we start with the Scripture. We start with what Scripture says about itself. And as we go to familiar territory, like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read this. All Scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos is the Greek word. Theos is the word for God, pneustos or pneuma, but pneustos means to breathe. And so the word in Greek literally means God breathed, and many of our translations, in our modern translations at least, speak that way, refer to this word in that way. All scripture is God breathed, others say inspired, given by inspiration. But it means to be breathed out by God. And the point of the Bible is nothing else is referred to in those terms. Nothing. When Paul was leaving Timothy, he did not say, you need scripture, but you also need this. You also need contact details details for Peter or some of the other apostles. You you got the Bible, but it's not quite all you need. No, that's not where 2 Timothy 3 takes us. And certainly the ministry outlined in chapter 4 is preach the word in season and out of season. But the scripture there says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed and is profitable because of what it is for everything you'll need in ministry. That's what verse 17 brings out. It equips the man of God for every good work. Uh, That includes counseling. That includes evangelism. That includes helping the saints grow towards Christ-likeness. Marriage issues, financial issues, business issues, family issues. Name the issue. The scripture is everything you need, Timothy. I'm going The time of my departure is at hand, but I've left you the word of God. You know it. I've given you uh, the truth of Scripture. That's what I mean by I've given you the word of God. And you've known this from early childhood. The Scriptures which are able to make you wise or have the wisdom to understand how to be saved. The wisdom for salvation. You don't need the Bible plus. That was the issue in the 16th century, and it's been the issue since the Garden of Eden. Basil of Caesarea. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He lived from around 330 A.D. to 379 A.D. There's a quote of his I want to bring here. He said this, Let God-inspired Scripture decide between us. And on whichever side be found doctrines in harmony with the word of God, in favor of that side will be cast the vote of truth. End of quote. I, I, I understand. I, 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 I get it. The, the early church and even the church of the first century was not a perfect church. Uh, but there were pockets. There were big pockets throughout these early periods where a lot of truth was brought forth. That's true in our day. It's hard to find a Christian bookstore in our day, but should you find one, you'll find some great books and some books that have the hissing serpent, if you could see in the spiritual realm, hissing, come read me, come read me, come read me, because it will take you away from the truth of God's word. And it's often not in the way of just outright deception. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's it's more than that. It's what we've been talking about. It's 
new programs for the pastor to accept as the way to guarantee church growth. He, he wants it, he prays for it, and he gets emails every week, I'm sure, as I do. Can't help it. Um, they just come saying, try this, try this. Here's a sermon series from Brother Big Shot who tried this and had 50% uh, added to his congregation uh, as he went through this series. We'll give you the notes, we'll give you the sermon lectures, the, uh, the, the sermons online, I mean, and uh, you put this to work, uh, just pay this little fee and uh, you can have that too. Here, here's all you need. And then the, the, the actual sermons are, are not deeply rooted in the scripture. It's, it's confirming man on his recliner chair trying to uh, assess, uh, try, trying to bring to him something that would cause him to give God a chance, give the word of God a chance. Let me get to something more recent in church history from not the fourth century now, but the 20th century, the Chicago Statement of uh, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Here's the quote. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confessions should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ, we deny that such a confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and the church. End of quote. That, that's, that's helpful. It cannot be rejected without grave consequences. I'm talking about the concept, the Bible alone is the Word of God. That's the issue, then, now, and always. Martin Luther, from his works, here's a quote, in the empire of the church, the ruler is God's Word. Not the Pope, not cardinals, not the magisterium. The ruler is God's Word. Again, to quote Luther, I have learned to ascribe the honor of infallibility only to those books that are accepted as canonical. I am profoundly convinced that none of these writers has erred. All other writers, however they may have distinguished themselves in holiness or in doctrine, I read in this way. I evaluate what they say, not on the basis that they themselves believe that a thing is true, but only insofar as they are able to convince me by the authority of the canonical books or by clear reason. End of quote. John Calvin from his Institutes. Since the church is Christ's kingdom and he reigns by his word alone, will it not be clear to any man that those are lying words by which the kingdom of Christ is imagined to exist apart from his scepter, that is, his most holy word. End of quote. From his sermons on the epistle to the Ephesians, Calvin wrote this, Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. Jesus, the God-man, he said this, Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. 31,
quoting the Old Testament. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I've said already, I'm convinced we need to know something of the Protestant Reformation to understand the issues in our day. And the material issue was the debate over how a man, a woman, boy and girl is saved, justified, declared right in the sight of God, declared right in the sight of God by God. And the answer is justification is by faith alone. The formal issue, the structure in which the whole debate ensued was the issue of final authority. Here's the issue. Who or what speaks for God? Martin Luther had two debates with the leading theologians of his day in the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Eck and Cardinal Cajetan. As Eck and Cajetan debated the subject of justification, they pointed out that Luther's views differed significantly from the official position of the church. For the Roman Catholic Church, both the former uh, church councils and the papal declarations were binding upon all those in the church. These men were able to demonstrate that Luther was in disagreement with both church councils and the Pope himself. Luther was perceived by many as being the most arrogant and pompous individual imaginable. They could not understand how one man could do as Luther was doing. They would say to Luther, who do you think you are that you presume to know more than the church councils or even the Holy Father in Rome? In these debates, Luther was asked if he stood against popes and councils. Luther admitted that indeed he did. In his opinion, church councils could err as well as the Pope himself. Of course, that was hugely disturbing and even considered blasphemous. Luther was quickly likened to the bohemian Jan Hus, who made similar statements to Luther's around 100 years before him. And Hus was burnt at the stake as a heretic. Now, when Luther did this, complete uproar ensued. Luther was excommunicated with a price put on his head. Finally, in 1521, an attempt was made for one final resolution. Officials and princes of both church and state met at an imperial diet. It's nothing to do with food. It was uh, uh, an official gathering convened in the town of Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S in Germany. It's where we get the phrase, by the way, opening up a can of worms. Luther did that in Worms, in Worms, Germany. Now, these officials in the presence of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles what happened was Luther was summoned and given a safe passage of conduct so he could get there, which meant he was able to travel to and from Worms without the fear of being arrested or killed. His inquisitor demanded an answer. As Luther's, many of Luther's books were put on a table, he was asked, are these your books? And he said, yes. And the question was simply this. Do you repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? <laughs> Luther surprised everyone by asking for time to think about the answer. He was given 24 hours and he appeared again to be faced with that same dilemma, the same question. As anticipated after the assembly convened again, it didn't take long for that question to be presented to Martin Luther. Luther responded, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not and cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. That last phrase here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. 
There's some debate as to whether Luther actually said that, but certainly Luther did take his stand there. And uh, that's very much the case. He took his stand. And based on that statement, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, he was making a declaration that scripture alone was his authority more than the Pope, more than councils, more than anything in church tradition. Notice especially those words, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Again, for Luther, God's words were binding and had an authority far beyond the respected words of church leaders or even popes. Now, Luther left Worms riding off into the night on his way home. He was kidnapped actually by his own people because they feared that the church would do so themselves in order to kill him. So uh, they captured him and kidnapped him themselves and then transferred him to a castle, the Wartburg Castle, where he began the arduous task of translating the Bible into German, the vernacular, uh, the language of the people. And that was it. The Reformation was on the way because the Bible was now available to the people in the language they could read. Before that, it was in only Latin. The Reformation, sparked by Luther, swept most of the countries of Europe. So what do we mean by Sola Scriptura? Sola Scriptura means by the Scriptures alone. At at Worms, the second slogan of the Reformation became established because of Luther's defiance of all other ecclesiastical, that's church authority, in the light of the Scriptures. That slogan was Sola Scriptura. Whether that phrase was banded about there. There's some debate about that. I'm I'm not sure it was, but the concept was there. That slogan, sola scriptura, was the Latin phrase meaning by the scriptures alone. But what is by the scripture alone? Luther was saying that the only written source in this world that had the level of authority to bind the conscience of a person is the Bible itself. Now, Luther had enormous respect for the insight, the wisdom, the collective teaching of the great theologians of the past, and that the creeds and confessions of the faith were not at all to be despised. He knew that it would be unspeakably arrogant to create theology without any reference whatsoever to the guidance of the great teachers God had set in the church. Yet Luther and the other reformers believed that no written document of man, no confession of faith, no creedal statement, and no council declaration had the authority to bind the conscience. The only person with such authority is God himself, and only the Word of God carries that authority. John MacArthur writes this, Sola Scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, is essential to genuine Christianity. Yet this doctrine is under attack like never before. Christians who want to defend their faith must have a basic knowledge of this doctrine, know how to support it with Scripture, proofs, and be able to discern the enemy's attacks against it. End of quote. This belief in the authority of Scripture alone to bind the conscience as Dr. James White states, does not mean that the Reformers rejected everything that every Christian in earlier ages has said. Indeed, they often cited the early Christians as supporters of their own positions. However, they recognized that those earlier believers were not inspired, were not inerrant, and in fact quite often made errors in their judgments and beliefs, just as people do today. The only infallible rule of faith, they argued, is found in the pages of Holy Writ. End of quote. The issue of Sola Scriptura Scriptura was an issue regarding the question of authority. Specifically, is God's authority invested in a book 
or in an, an institution, the church. The Protestant reformers believed in sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, and would declare the Roman church to believe and practice sola ecclesia by the church alone, for quite simply what the Roman Catholic Church says to be true is true because the church speaks with infallibility and cannot possibly be wrong. The response of the Roman Catholic Church was to remind the reformers that the church would not even have the Bible except the church councils actually define what the Bible actually was. The reasoning went like this. If the church is the institution that declares the Bible to be the Bible, does not that indicate that the church would have at least the same authority as the Bible or even more? What's the response of the reformers to this? In one word, recipimus. That's Latin, meaning to receive. See, both Martin Luther and John Calvin respond by saying to Rome that the key word the church used when it did define the Bible was the Latin word recipimus, which means we receive. The church declared, we receive these books as sacred scripture. Let's think this through. In the New Testament, we're told, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the authority to be called the children of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. Think about that. Think that through. When someone receives Christ as Lord and Savior, then they're certainly not giving any authority to Jesus that he doesn't already have. Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and earth. He is Lord, whether or not someone actually acknowledges him, acknowledges him as such. One day everyone will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess he is Lord. But saying he's Lord, acknowledging his, him as Lord, does not make him Lord. He already is Lord. You see, when the church said recipimus, she was humbly acknowledging her submission to the authority of the Bible. I've quoted James White, and I'll do so again, because this is, I remember this being so helpful to me in his book, The Roman Catholic Controversy. He, he provided a very helpful synopsis of the Reformation doctrine of Sola Scriptura by outlining both what it is and what it is not. And this is what I would love to uh, introduce to you, what it is and what it is not. Start, uh, I want to start here by quoting him, and here's what needs to be said about what sola, scripture, sola Scriptura is not. One, first and foremost, Sola Scriptura is not a claim that the Bible contains all knowledge. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, a manual on governmental procedures, or a catalog of automobile engine parts, Bible does not claim to give us every bit of knowledge that we could ever obtain. Two, Sola Scriptura is not a claim that the Bible is an exhaustive catalog of all religious knowledge. The Bible itself asserts that it's not exhaustive in detail. Just read John 21, verse 25. It is obvious that the Bible does not have to be exhaustive to be sufficient as our source of divine truth. Number three, sola scriptura is not a denial of the authority of the church to teach God's truth. Number four, sola scriptura is not a denial that the word of God has at times been spoken. Rather, it refers to the scriptures as serving the church as God's final and full revelation. Number five, Sola Scriptura does not entail the rejection of every kind or form of church tradition. There are some traditions that are God-honoring and useful in the church. Sola Scriptura simply means that any tradition, no matter how ancient or venerable it might seem to us, must be tested by a higher authority, and that authority is the Bible. Six. 
Sola Scriptura is not a denial of the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding and enlightening the church. So he's outlined what Sola Scriptura is not. Here's what Sola Scriptura is. Dr. White goes on. One, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura simply stated is that the scriptures alone are sufficient to function as the regular fidei, the infallible rule of faith for the church. Two, all that one must believe to be a Christian is found in Scripture and in no other source. This is not to say that the necessary beliefs of the faith could not be summarized in a shorter form. However, there is no necessary belief, doctrine, or dogma absolutely required of a person for entrance into the kingdom of heaven that is not found in the pages of Scripture. 3. That which is not found in the Scripture either directly or by necessary implication is not binding upon the Christian. 4. Scripture reveals those things necessary for salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. 5. All traditions are subject to the higher authority of Scripture. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. There can be no understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture apart from an understanding of the true origin and the resultant nature of Scripture. The Reformers had the highest view of the Bible and therefore had a solid foundation on which to stand in defending the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, uh, the one we hold to as a church, starts this way in chapter 1 concerning the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruptions of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Then it goes on to define what those holy scriptures are, all the books of the Old and New Testament, and then it lists the 66 books of the canon. In chapter 1, 4, we read this, the London Baptist Confession. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Back to Recipimus. When someone receives Christ, they're not giving Jesus more authority than he doesn't already have. He has all authority. And when the church received the word of God, it did not give authority to the church. It was saying in that one word in Latin, recipimus, we receive these books as God's inspired word. That is the authority. We simply receive it. Jesus is the authority. We simply receive him as Savior and Lord. Do you see the connection? It goes on to say, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy 
of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Scripture is self-authenticating. It's not the church that gives the Bible authority. The Bible itself, being what it is, God-breathed, the Holy Spirit attests to the heart of the Christian, this is the word of God and you must live by it. Jesus said it this way, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The very heart of the doctrine of sola scriptura is then laid out in the next two paragraphs. We're in chapter one and now looking at paragraph six. Let me quote it. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom following the general rules of the Word, which must always be Observed. Paragraph 7. Some things in Scripture are clearer than, clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. Now we could teach for hours about what that paragraph and the previous paragraph is saying, but what was the response of Rome to all this? The Reformation Their official response was the Council of Trent, 1545 through 1563. You see, just because the Reformation swept through Europe didn't mean the Roman Church disbanded. Instead, Rome engaged in a rigorous counter-Reformation. She took seriously the criticism of the moral scandals. And in reality, there was really a widespread moral reform in the Roman Catholic Church. However, an an ecumenical council, which was the Roman Catholic Church's official theological response to the Reformation, convened, called the Council of Trent. And it took place over an 18-year period between 1545 and 1563. During this time, many issues were discussed in detail, not the least of which was the issue of justification by faith alone. Rome actually placed its anathema, its eternal curse on the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, and on any who preached it. At that moment, clearly, Rome became a false church because in putting its anathema on the doctrine of sola fide, it put its anathema on the gospel itself. That is the heart of the gospel. Right there. Justification by faith alone. But before the Roman Catholic Church even discussed justification during the sixth session of Trent, 
the issue of authority was addressed in the fourth session. It was made very, very clear that there are two sources of authority in the world, namely scripture and tradition. The Roman Catholic Church has always maintained a very high view of scripture. Rome believes the Bible is the word of God. However, it affirms that in addition to the Bible, there's another infallible source called tradition. The inevitable question then becomes, what if, there's, what if there appears to be a conflict between what the scripture teaches and what the tradition of the church is? Luther, for example, saw a huge conflict between the tradition of the church and what the Apostle Paul wrote in his epistle to the Romans concerning justification. Rome believes that it is the function of the church to give both the Bible and its infallible interpretation to the world. Therefore, when Luther denied the tradition, in their minds, he was also denying the Bible because Rome was convinced that the tradition and the Bible agree. Now, I've labored the dispute of the reformers with Rome in the 16th century for, for this reason. The issues are so similar in our own day. Today we're faced with many of those same questions. What's the authority? What's the standard? What is the absolute authority? The word authority can be defined as the right to impose obligation. When legitimate authority speaks, it has every right to say such things as you must, you should, or you ought. Of course, when we hear those words, we often respond with the question, says who? Or why should I? In other words, we ask, by what authority? Or by what standard do you try to direct me or hold me responsible? I hope you're seeing these concepts are not vague and abstract and merely some theological question. It, 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 it touches everything relating to the life of the Christian and of the church. The question of the authority of the Bible is very much related to the question of the authorship of the Bible. Indeed, if we look at that word authority, the first six letters spell the word author. Christians believe the Bible to be the vox Dei, the voice of God, or the verbum Dei, the, the word of God. Yet the Bible didn't come out of heaven down on a parachute, and we don't believe that the Bible was actually penned by God. The actual writing was done by human beings. However, the Bible is God's message. As we consider these things, and I need to close, I, I trust the light's going on in your heart if it hasn't already. Maybe this is material that you're very familiar with, but my desire as a pastor is to see every Christian who is under my ministry to know this inside out, to know the value of what is in your hands when you have the Word of God? That's why when we understand it, much blood has been shed. Martyrs of the faith have shed their blood to get the Bible into the language of the people. That's true for the English language. Men like Wycliffe and Tyndale are prominent in this, but there are others who laid down their lives for the truth of God's Word to be put in our hands. They understood the value of the Word of God. Do you? Do I? Does the church, does the local church we attend understand what they have in their hands when they have a Bible? Every sermon I preach, I ask people to turn to a certain passage of Scripture and I say these words, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. I can't do that 
with a quote of the tradition of the church or some of my favorite preachers. But I can because the Bible is the word of God. I can say that of the Bible. Any text, any verse, the Bible is God speaking to us. That's Jesus' view of Scripture. And when we have that and we understand nothing else is that, nothing else is God breathed. Woe to the man who will not preach the word. All of the word. The word of God in its fullness. The whole counsel of God. I pray that your heart is inflamed. I hope you hear passion in my voice because inside me there's a desire that the word of God would be released like the lion it is, that it would go out and conquer. <laughs> King, the king in the forest, the king in the plains is the lion. King in Africa is the lion. The lion is the word of God. Let it loose. See what God can do in and through you, in and through me. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for what it is. Oh, the value of this. We may have picked up the Bible in some bookstore, an old rickety <laughs> well-worn Bible that was even in paperback and cost two or three dollars. Yet the truth of that word is incalculable. There is no human price to be put on the value of what it is in terms of God-breathed revelation. Oh, the value of it. Lord, write the truth of this on our heart and may we not only believe this, not only believe we have the Word of God, not only treasure it, but look to it as sufficient for life, for godliness, for evangelism, for guidance, for sanctification, and for change in our society. Let God be true and every man a liar. May your Word go forth and conquer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.